For many people, high school and later university is one of the great times in their lives. They start to grow up. They start to interact with the world in an adult way. Sometimes they make long-lasting friendships. And very often they get ideas from their fellow students, from their environment, and of course, from their teachers that will inform and shape the direction of their lives. However, not every idea is equally good. And sometimes some of the ideas that are floating around out there on campus are really not the most helpful if we want to create a fairer society. To talk about this and more specifically about his book, Conspiracy You, which just came out yesterday, check the episode notes for links to Mr. Shea's book and other things. I'm here today with author, president of Chai Mitzvah, which is a Jewish nonprofit and chairman of the board and co-founder of Signature Bank, Scott Shea. Hello, Mr. Shea. How are you? I'm great, Derek. Thank you for having me on your program. Thank you. Thank you for coming. And thank you, everybody out there for listening to this episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Don't forget, you can watch a video version of this on our YouTube channel. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. So, Mr. Shea, this is your third book. The book is called Conspiracy U, like the letter U, like university. Uh, and uh, it just came out yesterday from Wicked Sun Publishers. Tell me about what was the idea behind this? Because your other books were also kind of, the first one was very Jewish focused called Getting Our Groove Back, How to Engage American Jewry, published in 2006, kind of like a series of mini manifestos to kind of reinvigorate American Jews. And then in 2018, you wrote a book called Good Faith, Questioning Religion and Atheism, which is kind of a rebuttal in book form to a dining companion's proclamations of the need for scientific progress and his skepticism or even outright hostility towards um, beliefs in God. So you wrote a book as a rejoinder to that. And now you've decided to write about this. What is this? What what was the impetus for all this? Well, Derek, this is actually a book I didn't intend to write. It started out, as a matter of fact, as a 2,500-word essay about lessons I learned from my father, who was a Holocaust survivor. And then the timing was such that I started to consider and hear about some of what was going on at my beloved alma mater, Northwestern University. And over the years, I had paid some attention to it, but it really exploded a few years ago in terms of some of its professors openly promoting conspiracy theories, masquerading as scholarship. 
And the more I did research and dived deep, deep into the rabbit hole of reading what these professors were writing, the more I felt this needs to be a book. It needs to be written. And I thought the lessons that I learned from my father, frankly, guided me in my investigation. So you kind of came across this uh, notion like, hey, at this university, and so people know Northwestern is in Illinois. Uh, it's in Chicago, I think, yeah? In Chicago and in Evanston. And it's considered a top 10 university in the United States. So it's certainly not an also ran. But when I went and studied what these professors were writing, I realized that they were actually betraying the essence of Northwestern, whose motto is the foundation in many ways of academic standards. What is that motto? Do you know? Yeah. So the motto actually was taken from the Christian scriptures, Philippians 4, 8. And it says, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Ooh, that's, 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 that's pretty good stuff. It is a great motto. It has both an intellectual and an ethical dimension where the intellectual side says we're supposed to strive for truth and have open-mindedness and be open to the other person. We're supposed to seek out fairly sympathetic readings if they're valid, if there be any praise. We're supposed to make sure that we're accurately describing things. What's a good report based on evidence? And we should think on these things. We shouldn't just be accepting things. I mean, it's a great motto. If you think about it, it's actually another way of saying the golden rule. Judge and learn from other people the way you would want to be judged and learn from yourself. And by the way, that's not just Jewish or Christian. That is also a fundamental part of the traditions in China, India, Tibet, and even Native American and African cultures. So here's this school. You went there. You thought the motto was great. You believed in it. It, it helped inform and shape you. And then you kind of get wind like, hey, things have changed there. Uh, like what? How did you even find out that things were maybe not the way they were when you were there? So I, I was catching wind of this over the decades since I graduated. While I was there, there was a professor, a tenured professor of electrical engineering by the name of Arthur Butts, who wrote a book called The Hoax of the 20th Century. Uh-oh. Yes. I think I see. I think I know this book, actually. <laughs> you might, because it's become a classic on the far, far right on the, in the neo-Nazi world. And yes, he hates Jews. And yes, he's a neo-Nazi. But what I learned at heart, he's a anti-Zionist, which I didn't expect until I actually read the book, which I don't recommend to anybody. <laughs> Honestly, it is full of of betrayal to the oath that I talked about. He, he has this belief that Jews were so smart that they planted all this fake evidence for investigators to chance upon. And there were a few Jews, not many, who worked in peripheral rows in the Nuremberg trials. And they hoodwinked people. They caused judges to accept perjury that essentially anybody who got close to a Jew was could have been brainwashed. Germans confessed to atrocities that they didn't even commit, wouldn't have even thought of committing because they were such good people. And this whole death of Jews, that was just a little typhoid break somewhere that probably came from the Russians. Amazing and breathtaking. And if you go through the motto, he basically betrays every single step of the motto. And here he is, a tenured professor 
And this is one of the problems with conspiracy theorists is that often they're pretty brilliant in other ways, but then they, then they start connecting dots that aren't connected. Like the, the, the butts wrote an algorithm, which is part of the reason we're able to have this conversation uh, with the computing power of the internet today. I mean, he's no slouch when it comes to being smart. Right. He's not, he's not a dumb, dumb. He's not some, you know, dumb, dumb feeding Gainsburgers to his German shepherd and, and cleaning his pistol. Correct. Well, he may be doing that, but, <laughs> and I, I don't know, I'm not making a personal, uh, a personal shot at him, but I don't, I don't know, but I do know that he came up with this algorithm that substantially increased computing power so much. So that it has to do with the Hilberg, Hilberg paradox. And it's just, it was named after him and it was probably no leap of faith for Northwestern to grant him tenure. And of course, then he used his sabbatical year, apparently, from what I can tell from his publication history, to write this heavily footnoted book that is, when it comes to being evidential, it's nonsense. It shouldn't pass anybody's muster. And yet, of course, he's a tenured professor. So everybody does the, you know, waves their hands and, and says we can't do anything about him. And he's still teaching a required course today. Well, one required course in two sections that every electrical engineering major has to take. Hopefully he's just sticking to the subject. Yeah, I and I, I think he's careful to do that from every from all report because he is mindful of the fact that he has lifelong tenure and he'd like to presumably wants to keep it. Right, sure. Now, to be fair, though, I think it is fair to say that, and granted, uh, this book is especially egregious, but I think there are a lot of college professors who are, um, well, they're a little bit weird, and they maybe have in their private lives some pretty kooky notions. But where, where, what does the university do with that? Because in the modern age, it seems that there is, you know, a lot of people complain about this cancel culture, which was a term that the left actually came up with and then uh, got co-opted by the right. But this notion of, well, in today's day and age, if he'd written that, that book last year or three years ago, I, tenure or not, I think he'd be gone. So is it just kind of like, well, that was the times back then and it's too late and he's old. And what is the university to do? exactly about this except just kind of let him as long as he doesn't bring it into the classroom i guess it's okay well so here's the thing there are professors not him who do bring this into the classroom but it's part of a bigger issue and and you mentioned cancel culture but it's it's part of a bigger issue about what are we supposed to do with folks who have great brilliance and accomplishments for which they should be recognized but on the same token, they have huge blind spots or in some cases, character flaws or biases or the likely, you know, just take Kant. He was a masterful philosopher, but he was a bigoted slander of non-Europeans. I mean, what he said about Africans, he wouldn't, he would certainly have been canceled. That's for sure. And, and, and perhaps appropriately so. I mean, he was a, he was an out and out bigoted slanderer. And then look at Confucius. I mean, people told him up as the archetypal person of wisdom. Correct. But also he was a Chinese supremacist. Um, and in Africa, it's not Kakbar Mafal, who was a celebrated 7th century West African philosopher. His proverbs are great. I read some of them. Some of them are great. And some of them say such evil things about women that you wouldn't. And, and you know, I could go on and on. James Watson, co-discoverer of the DNA. You know, we'd have to continue this session and 20 more to, to, to cover the list. <laughs> it, could, it could be 17 hours of people who were kind of jerks. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> right. But on the other hand, like invented, you know, major things. <laughs> Professor Butts is a paradigm on the far right, but in the modern age, there's also paradigms on the far left. And one of the things that I thought was interesting to me, and I think really fascinating, is that when I read some of these professors on the far right, and I, I read through all of what they wrote, sometimes in the end, when it comes to Jews, they say literally the same thing, or they reverse the characters. Arthur Butts's prose is a little more plotting, as you might expect. A, a electrical engineer, yeah, and it's fine, you know, but it still hurts. It's still like painful to read because of what it says. But then you can read someone by the name of uh, Professor Stephen Thrasher, who is a great writer and has done some really awesome work in the area of public health and racism and sexual identity, really some interesting stuff. But when it comes to Zionism, Israel, it's not that what he says is, is wrong. It is wrong. But it's that he also traffics in conspiracy theories. So, for example, for Professor Butts, the Jews have this secret cabal and are behind this worldwide plot to harm white people and Palestinians. Um, he throws in the Palestinians, but I think he's really more worried about the white people. And he would claim in a certain kind of way that Jews are fake whites. They're not really whites. They're really people of color using their fake white skin to undermine real whites which is a bizarre concept you know it's such an interesting idea because uh, especially in the united states so much is i mean i think ultimately a lot of it's about class but a lot of stuff certainly on the surface is about race and it seems to be we can talk about how it's a cultural differences in language and blah 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 but a lot of it really does seem to be about how much melanin is in somebody's skin Except when it comes to some of these anti-Semitic conspiracy theories where there's this notion that somehow it's almost like Jewish people have this supernatural shape-shifting ability like the, like the lizards of David Icke. You know, they can transform themselves into these white people and therefore infiltrate society. And uh, it, it's, it's bizarre that the magical power that is attributed to Jewish people. Well, you're 100% right, because if you read uh, Professor Thrasher, he writes about Jews, and this isn't his term, but so it's my interpretation, but essentially Jews are hyper white. They're teaching white people, other white people, police departments worldwide, governments worldwide, to oppress people of color. So when Jews use, essentially misuse, their historic oppression, and this is a theme of uh, definitely throughout the left, is that while Arthur Butts believes that the Holocaust was a hoax, many on the left, although I'll get to some, there are some exceptions, many on the left are not interested in defending white people from the charge that they did some really horrific things. So yes, white Germans could and did engage in a Holocaust. But many of the writers on the left think that the Holocaust has been used as a, as a card, a playing card, and that it is obfuscating much further oppression and genocide, et cetera, that, that they allege the Jews are committing. Now, when you step back for 12 seconds, it shouldn't take that long, but there's really no controversy that about 6 million Jews were murdered in the Holocaust, among which my grandfather, my father 
stood in Svexner, Lithuania and witnessed or was one step away from witnessing his father being murdered, his brothers being murdered, his aunts, his uncles, his cousin. My closest relative on my father's side is a, is a second cousin once removed. That's as close as it gets. Everybody else was wiped out. And that person only survived. Again, I could go on, you know, because of essentially uh, some seemingly miraculous or amazing coincidences. And my father, when he was liberated, would have told you that it was a miracle. He was less than 70 pounds when he was liberated from Dachau. And he had the great fortune of being liberated by the American forces who took him to a field hospital for a year. Well, he wasn't for, he spent a full year recovering and a lot of that time in an American field hospital. And thank God he did. And thank God for that. And here I am. But but my point is, and I'm going a little off on, the, on a tangent, is that so many on the left argue that the Holocaust is overblown, uh, not as huge deal. It needs to be contextualized in the context of other tragedies. And what we really ought to be talking about is the Palestinians who are subject to this theoretical genocide that's ongoing now. Now, you do have some people like Stephen Saleta, who was a professor at the University of Illinois and has a substantial story around him and his uh, tenure process. But he argues in Israel's Dead Soul that somehow the Holocaust was related to Jews on a multi-generational basis, creating the uh, basis for a Palestinian genocide. He comes very close in complicated language to being like butts in blaming the Jews somehow for the Holocaust or for the myth. So there are a lot of different, lot of different takes on the Holocaust. It never happened. It did happen, but the Jews allowed it to happen, which is just weird. I mean, I guess it's nice to have your own country and all, but still. The interesting thing to me is that I think a lot of people mix up, and I think you get this. I mean, I know people I know um, in the academic world, because I'm a teacher also. They often mix words up, and you get terms like anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. People are using them interchangeably, but they're not the same thing. No, it is possible to be an anti-Zionist and not be anti-Semitic. That is not generally what's going on today in academia or in most of the world, but it is possible. I wouldn't say that. But even the word anti-Semitism, I mean, when you go back about complaints and conspiracy theories about Jews, so for many years, it was Jews' religion for hundreds of years. I mean, that's what brought us the Inquisition. That's what brought us a whole bunch of complaints about and the prominent thing in society for many, many hundreds of years was religion. That's no longer the case. In in a sort of post-Darwin world, race was the big thing in Europe, particularly. And, you know, the white man's burden, obviously the scramble for Africa that took place in 1876. So people viewed issues through a lens of race, primar- in many cases, primarily. And yet, I will I will say that I think they were they were also still operating from rather old fashioned ideas that like things somehow got passed down in the blood that uh, people of a certain race had certain characteristics and certain ways of thinking and uh, you know just like people still in the late nineteenth century there were still plenty of people quite high up in society who believed the pregnant woman decides somehow the gender of or the sex of 
her unborn baby, which we know none of this is true. And yet I think they still had these ridiculous ideas in their heads, even though there had been some scientific progress, like with Darwinism and the theory of evolution. For sure. And you had got, you had people, mostly guys, frankly, but people, it was, it was definitely a patriarchal era then, who now they view Jews through race. So it used to be in German, you had a term called Judenas, Jew hatred. But then this fellow, Wilhelm Marx, thought, you know, that just doesn't sound so polite. So he came up with the term, this, who was a German politician, this Wilhelm Marx, came up with the term anti-Semitism. And he started the anti-Semitic league. Again, it was based on race because that was the lens of that time. And, and yeah, of course he hated Jews, um, but that was the lens of his time. And today, to a certain degree, nationalism is a lens of our time for good and for bad. And frankly, all of the people who are anti-Zionists are, to the best of just about, I don't want to say every last one, are ardent Palestinian nationalists, but against the idea of Jewish self-determination. Now, Israel is a flawed country. Frankly, I don't think any of us live in a country that's all good. All countries have problems. Maybe Iceland. Maybe, maybe, but they had a banking issue too <laughs> that almost blew them up. <laughs> oh, that's true. Okay, okay. All right, New Zealand. <laughs> and by the way, New Zealand with the Maori have their set of issues. You know, let's not forget the Maori came probably, you know, in the 700, 600s, 700s. And then, of course, the white men came from England, you know, a thousand years later. So these are all complicated. There's no... I mean, if you want to talk about it, it's so funny in that folks from New Zealand have referred to Israel as a settler colonial state. But the reality is Jews were in the land of Israel, whether you like it or not, just as a historical fact, uh, unless you think the Roman historians were lying and, and a whole bunch of, you know, and the Babylonians and the Assyrians and their texts were lying a good maybe 2000 years before, well, more than 2000 years, actually, closer to 3000 years before anybody showed up in New Zealand who was from Europe. The emotions get involved and they say, oh my God, I can't believe there's still, you know, terrible things happening and and some of them are happening to the Palestinians because of Israeli uh, actions and yet I've even heard this argument of yeah but you know the when the when the Jews came into that land 3000 years ago you know they kicked people out and it, you kind of go like okay where are we drawing the line here we have to draw a line someplace because you know Descendants of white Europeans sure seem to think that the United States is theirs, even though there were people there for an awful long time before them. So are we drawing the line that recently? Because the Jews have a far longer claim to that land. Now, could they have come up with a two-state solution as post-Zionism suggests? Maybe. Maybe they will someday. Who knows? But that's neither here nor there. Zionism really is. The fact of a Jewish state is right and it is important. It's important for Jewish people. It's important maybe for the whole world. But Zionism is about Jews having a country. That's it. No more. And, and it's a flawed country. And it's not, a, I'm, I'm not going to say it's a perfect country. It isn't. As I said, no country is. But for those who believe in a country for the Palestinian people, then they're Palestinian nationalists. And I totally respect that as well. But here's the thing, and this is what's problematic to me, is that I think there can be a two-state solution. I, I certainly I pray there will be a solution that allows 
uh, the Palestinians who may not be the indigenous people, but certainly have a historic claim to land as well. And I would not, in, in the same way you were talking about how, where do you draw the line, Palestinian Arabs started coming, well, Arabs started coming to the Palestinian era after the ascent of Islam. Um, so we're talking, you know, six, seven, you know, seventh century. And they, and there are Palestinians, they're, they're Arabs that have been there for a long time. So there's historic claims, there's indigenous claims. I mean, the Jews never actually left entirely. But the important thing is not to demonize. And this goes back to the motto, whatsoever things are good, if there be any praise. And what you have in academia today is a demonization of anybody who believes in a state of Israel. So in some places, you can't join clubs. <laughs> in some places, people don't want you in classes um, and professors don't want to write recommendations. And it goes on and on and on. And I believe fervently that the only way you ever have peace between two peoples is by trying to figure out some mutual understanding. Demonizing the other side is saying you need to wipe the other side out, which is never a path to peace. And frankly, it's not something we do anywhere else in the world. I mean, we in the United States, the present administration and the past administration tried to negotiate peace deals with the Taliban, who clearly were sworn enemies of each other. And if you look at the Western Europe, I mean, or e and Eastern Europe, I mean, ancient peoples, not even so ancient, modern nationalist peoples have to try to understand and seek out the good in each other. That's the path to peace. It goes back to the golden rule. much is made today of how oh we're, we're so polarized and we've never really been like this and yet i've i've seen this coming at least since the 1980s and in, in my personal experience i watched uh in the united states as people became a bit more polarized and when i left the u.s uh, originally to come to europe in 1993 like those of us who are liberals who were democrats and on the liberal side progressive side of of the political and social uh, spectrum we were Israel people. We were pro-Israel. That was what it was. There had just in 92 and 93 in San Francisco, there had been some rising talk of, hey, you know what? We should also think about the Palestinians. You know, Tom Friedman says in his great book, uh, From Beirut to Jerusalem, that Israel had the moral high ground until that invasion of Lebanon in whenever it was, 82 or whatever. And at that point, they became just another Middle Eastern country, you know, trying to scramble out a place for itself. And, uh, and I think some people started to see that. I then left the United States for five, for seven years. And when I came back, suddenly people on the left were like, no, Israel's the devil, and Palestinians never do wrong. And I was like, when did this happen? Uh, when did we switch switch the whole rhetoric? I didn't even understand it. And over those in those last 20 years, I've watched it get more and more and more and more. You can't even, I literally said to someone the other day, do you know that the cherry tomato was invented in Israel? And they got angry because they have decided that they're pro-Palestinian. And if you're pro-Palestinian, then you must be anti-Israeli. I mean, that is so sad, this demonization and this polarization, this Manichian, all good, all bad, has really taken such root. But I will say this, and I think academia bears a considerable amount of blame for this, because it actually goes back further when you go to academia. These theories of demonizing Zionists 
or anyone who believed in Jewish national self-determination. Actually, what I do is I show both on the far right, who I talk about in Conspiracy U, that their theories are direct descendants of neo-Nazi theories and writings. And you can quote, and I show the quotes. And then on the far right, on the far left, should I say, the present day demonization of Israel and the theories that are being written about today are the direct descendants of Soviet and communist theories. I mean, again, it is almost breathtaking to read some of the entrees that the Soviet encyclopedia, the great Soviet encyclopedia had with respect to Israel and the Jews. They read almost as though Angela Davis was reading it as she was writing Ferguson as Gaza um, and, and other things that are just straight from it and Marxist political theory. So if you go back, and, and I think one of the great students of all of this, and frankly, his greatest PR success is if you go back to Yasser Arafat's speech in front of the UN in 1974, he really combined the Soviet anti-Semitic, and by the way, the, the Soviets were great anti-Semites. You know, they had anti-fascist leagues. They had Yevetsetskia. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, where people had to sign up and speak against Israel, speak against Judaism. Um, so he, he really combined Soviet anti-Zionist rhetoric with modern nationalism. And it was a, it was a tremendous triumph from a propaganda perspective. And it was it worked in 1975, a year later, that's when the UN passed the Zionism is racism resolution. Right. Which again is, is conflating two things, frankly. I mean, there are certainly Zionists who are racist. There's no doubt about that. There are there are hardcore Zionists who are also incredibly strictly orthodox religiously and who are like, no, this is for Jews and Jews only. Everybody else can just, you know, get out and shut up and leave us alone because uh, we're tired of listening to you guys. And that, But there are plenty of Zionists who are like, yes, there should be a, a Jewish state who do not have that opinion at all. Same thing. I would say 100%. There are plenty of Palestinians that are the nicest people in the world. And there are Palestinians who are racists. And there are Persians who are nice. And then there are Persians who believe that the Persia is a, is a superior country. And that fuels, unfortunately, some of what happens in Iran. You have all sorts of people. And I believe it comes down, again, to people and the golden rule. And we need to make sure that there's a place where we're treating people like people and not like identity groups. I, I think that's just like critical to our future as a civil society, because once we frame whole groups as the other, the demonized other, then you can do anything to it. I mean, that's what Hitler got away with doing by calling the Jews vermin. They weren't human. On Amazon and on Goodreads, it says in the description of the uh, book, Conspiracy You, again, which came out yesterday, uh, that you say Jews serve as a canary in the coal mine. What do you mean by that? How so? 
Well, in the past, and I fear today, what starts with Jews doesn't usually end with Jews. There's many people who have made that observation because when a society or group starts oppressing Jews intellectually, physically, economically, it usually is just because the Jews are the easiest group to start with because unfortunately there is so much bias against Jews. Now, that doesn't mean other groups aren't oppressed as well, but it, historically, it's, it's, Jews have been an easy target. And by the way, the first BDS movements came from the far right, not from the far left. So, and that was a way to then, and then other people become discriminated against. So I worry that this sense of Jews slash Zionists being all evil or Zionism becoming a catch-all for Jews that the, and those Zionists are all evil can also be attributed and will be attributed to other groups. And unfortunately, I think that's part and parcel of what we're seeing with the polarization of society writ large. But I will say this, and Dara Horn makes this point, and I think she's 100% right. Yes, the Jews are the canary in the coma. And when it's bad for the Jews, when the canary starts to keep over and die, it's bad for the miners who are also in the coal mine, but it's still bad for the canary. <laughs> the canary's still a victim. That's true. That canary is not having a good day. <laughs> no. <laughs> So I'm worried about everyone else. Don't get me wrong. Um, and we are canary <laughs> in the coal mine as the Jews. But, it, it, you know, it didn't go well when all of the folks stood aside and watched my father's family being murdered and deported. It didn't go so well, actually, for the locals after that either. But they stood around and actually handed in the Jews. I mean, there were many Jews who escaped to the, to the surrounding forests. They tried to hide in people's barns and, and the like. But it didn't go well for Svexionalism. Either. Yeah, that's very true. Well, of course, you know, the Pink Triangle, which is uh, sort of the very hardcore queer nation, queer pride, uh, I don't want to call them militant, but the, hey, we've really had enough, and if we have to, we'll get in your face gay pride movement that uh, started uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. The Pink Triangle that is their symbol was the symbol that the Nazis used for homosexuals. It was like, first it was the physically and mentally uh, inferior, quote unquote, euthanasia uh, of babies in hospitals and so on, then the Jews, and then it was homosexuals, Roma, eventually the Slavs, but they're they're okay enough. We can work them to death. They'll they'll be uh, they'll be basically a slave race. Uh, you know the blacks. We will we'll round them up when we get around to it. So it really and and I see what you mean. In that way, it was like yeah, it started with the Jews partly because they were there, uh, and then it just kind of it just it's almost like the the hate monster can never be satisfied. Once it has a taste of blood, it just wants more blood. If you let me go to a little bit of a my own theory here and my own construct, I'll tell you this. I think that it comes down to a certain kind of way to idolatry. I think idolatry is what explains things now. I'm okay with people being atheists. I think that's fine. I think you can be a believer or non-believer. I don't think you can prove God, not prove God. But I think it's bad to be an idolater because, and this is the message of the Bible, I think, is that idolatry is not some quaint bowing down to statues. It's, it's lies about power. It's about ascribing super authority or super power to finite beings like God kings, the God king pharaohs, or to ideologies or to natural processes. So, and how did Hitler, you know, the whole 20th century was, a, was actually a catalog of God king pharaohs. How did Hitler 
Mao, Pol Pot, the Assad family, the Kim family, Stalin, I could go on and on, get away with what they got away with because they use the same tropes as the God King Pharaoh 3000 years ago, poetry, pageantry, theater, of course, all backed up with powerful secret informer armies, powerful secret informers. That's how Stalin ordered the Kulaks to all be murdered. You know, 3 million, several million, starved the court of the Ukraine, sent tens of millions to the Gulag, came up with lists of people who would be murdered, and nobody complained because he was a God King Pharaoh. People ascribed super authority. And what he said was truth. Hitler, what Hitler said was truth. What Mao said, he caused the death of 75 million Chinese comrades over his lifetime. Wow. And nobody questioned him. He was a God King Pharaoh, I think. And so what your group is all good. The other group, if they die, if they're murdered, it doesn't matter. Mao is ascribed, uh, and this is not a hard source, but he's ascribed to have said that if 300 million of his countrymen died to ensure the supremacy of the Chinese Communist Party, that would be okay. So in other words, yeah, because the ideology is more important. The Third Reich was more important than anybody, than any treatment of anybody else who wasn't part of the in-group. So because these other people aren't really people, there's not a shared humanity. And that's, I think, the key. And at a certain level, in an ideological, intellectual way, what's going on in a certain campuses, in some campuses and some parts of campuses are, if you're not with us, you're a bad person. You're an evil person. And you don't have the right, you don't have the right to be heard. You don't have the right to perhaps existence, but I don't think people are going so far, but certainly you don't have any, you don't have the right to express yourself. And bad things happen when there's idolatry. Bad things happen when we don't view every other person as having a spark of divinity, humanity, however you want to put it, where we have to use the golden rule, where we have to seek out what's good in the other person, not assume only the worst in what, uh, in that other group. And that's the motto. I mean, that's sort of bringing a full circle to our beginning in a way. That's the motto. Seek out what's good. Is there any praise? Is there anything lovely? How can I connect with that person? What's true about what that other person is saying? Maybe I have to rethink something I thought. Maybe, 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 maybe I don't have all of the answers. Well, that's certainly food for thought and, and bolstering, I think, in uh, in this day and age as the 21st century really starts getting rolling and uh, we're all still kind of breathlessly waiting to see what will the 21st century bring. Will it be a time where we see more fairness, more of the Enlightenment ideals of liberal democracy and participation and, and wealth be spread more? Or will we see us break up into further and further smaller and smaller tribes typing away at each other on our keyboards. When you have this kind of fragmentation, I think that the soil is ready or ripe for, for terrible things to happen. And I would like to see the 21st century be better than the 20th century was. Oh my gosh, amen to that. All right, Mr. Scott Shea, a super, super, super interesting conversation. I could We could keep talking for hours, but I know you have to go. Uh, thank you very much for talking to me today. 
It's been a pleasure. Thank you for being one of the first places I'm talking about uh, my new book, which just came out yesterday. So thank you. Conspiracy You. Yes, Conspiracy You is the name of the book. It is available on Amazon. It is available in bookshops. Uh, it is about some of the things we talked about and much, much, much more. Uh, you can also read his other books, Getting Our Groove Back, How to Energize American Jewry, which is uh, obviously focused on the Jewish community, and a much wider sort of ranging book about uh, religion and atheism and uh, how the two interplay in our modern society. Uh, Mr. Shea is also the president of Chai Mitzvah, which was established in 2009, sort of about getting the Jewish community engaged and it's okay to be Jewish but participate in your faith and participate in your community and you know who can fault that really and of course he is chairman of the board and co-founder of Signature Bank which is just celebrating its 20th year this year I believe 100% thank you all right thank you very much uh, for talking to me today and uh, thank you everybody out there for listening Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.